without further ado, I have the great pleasure of being able to introduce to you Dr. Sarah Emanuel for um, the teaching today. Sarah is the Assistant Professor of Theological Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I know she is one of the very few Jewish scholars of the New Testament, and so we are very um, grateful to have discovered her work and to have had this connection. I don't know if Laura Schramm is on today, but I want to give her a shout out because she sent me an article that Sarah wrote and was like, I think she would be great for our congregation. Um, I told Sarah we share a building with a Jewish congregation, a Reformed Jewish um, temple, and so we've been really trying to work really hard at making sure that we're like getting the anti-Semitism out of so much of our faith because our faith tradition is just absolutely seeped in it. And so we're seeking to learn everywhere that we can. Um, Sarah's also written a book on Revelation that Caroline and I are already very much looking forward to reading together. Um, she's written a book on trauma in the Bible. And last but not least, she has four dogs and two cats. And so she is an animal lover. I've got one cat. I don't think I don't think he could tolerate another, but we're really glad to have you. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you for that warm welcome and introduction. Uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, yeah, so um, Emily and I were, were chatting by email on um, what might be uh, appropriate to share for today, and, and we landed on the Jewishness of the New Testament. So um, uh, as Emily shared, I'm one of the, the handful of New Testament scholars um, who, you know, happen to be Jewish. And so something that I get asked quite frequently um, is uh, how did I get into this field? Uh, why did I choose of all things uh, New Testament studies? So um, uh, the answer uh, kind of goes back to what, what Emily shared was important to your congregation, which is, um, you know, shared story. It goes back to, um, you know, a really personal story of mine. One of my earliest memories growing up uh, is, uh, you know, being um, about three years old. I was, I'm from Las Vegas, grew up in Las Vegas and um, it was, it was Christmas time and I was being babysat by a family friend and, you know, I was over at her house instead of um, her coming to, to my parents' house and there was a tree and there was what looked to me um, uh, under the tree to be just, you know, like fig toy figurines to play with. And I got really excited when I saw um, what appeared to me to be um, a baby boy in what I thought was a basket. And so I got really, you know, super stoked about it and like screamed to my babysitter, look, it's baby Moses. And uh, she proceeded to tell me, no, that's not Moses. That's this, this person named Jesus. And I was like, absolutely not. I go to Hebrew school. Trust me. Um, I know what, uh, what I'm talking about here. This is obviously Moses. And, um, from my three-year-old's perspective, this got really heated. <laughs> um, we were in a bit of an argument, but I'm, I've been told as an adult that it wasn't an argument. She was, she thought it was really cute, but, um, from, from my young perspective, I really thought this was serious. And, um, I just, I don't know. I kind of tell myself that I've been curious about this person um, ever since and this person's connections to um, Judaism and, and Jewishness. And, and as I grew up, I continued to hear things about his Jewishness. I was always told, oh, Jesus was a Jew. But the older I got, I started to hear a second half to that sentence, which was Jesus was a Jew, but um, 
if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, you as a Jew will go to hell. And so I was very intrigued by this um, seeming contradiction. How could this person be Jewish and yet to be Jewish now is somehow not good enough in the eyes of this Jewish person and these people who worship this Jewish person. So um, I followed friends, um, you know, through through middle school and high school to Bible studies, to um, sacrament meetings, to um, Mormon seminary at 530 in the morning, to um, youth groups. I was just always I wasn't going because of a lack in my personal sense of self. I was going out of full intrigue and curiosity. And I did not know yet at the time that you could study this from an academic perspective. I thought the way to learn was to just follow people where they were going. Um, and so um, finally, I, I went to college um, at the University of Delaware. And that's where I learned that, yeah, you can you can study the Bible. That is um, an academic field of study. And I just kind of went with it. I've taken zero breaks, went from you know, preschool through high school to undergrad to master's to PhD to, to teaching in the university setting. Um, and I just I have always found it, you know, since back to that earliest memory. So, so interesting. Uh, so um, something about that, um, that sentence, Jesus was a Jew, but, uh, you know, being Jewish now isn't good enough in the eyes of, of Jesus followers today. Uh, relates to how I teach my students to approach the Bible, which is, um, you know, what I call a three worlds perspective. And this is, a, you know, a, something that that many scholars and in, in biblical studies share with their students. I didn't come up with this, this three, um, three part world. Uh, but nonetheless, the three part uh, world perspective is, you know, the world behind the text, the world of the text and the world in front of the text. So those are the three worlds behind of and in front. And I'll start with the of world. The world of the text refers to these stories, uh, what's actually on the pages, plot, tone, diction, characters. Uh, the world behind the text refers to the historical, cultural, theological context in which a text was written. Uh, and so for the New Testament, the New Testament is comprised of 27 books written from roughly early 50s of the common era to early mid second century of the common era. Um, so, you know, first text to have been written in the New Testament is Paul's letter to the Thessalonian community, otherwise known as First Thessalonians. That's written in the early 50s. So the world behind the text would be early 50s of the common era. Uh, and then the world in front of the text refers to interpretive history, um, how different communities of listeners have interpreted the stories, also refers to us, our, you know, us as readers living in the world in front, what we bring to the stories, what we're, uh, what our biases are, what our curiosities are, what we're longing for when we're reading, you know, who we are shapes what we see in the of world, and also shapes the types of questions we ask about the behind world. Um, and it also, you know, can relate to academic lenses, you know, what kinds of um, questions might an academic be asking? Are we asking questions of history? Are we asking questions related to feminism? Are we asking questions related to trauma? Um, depending on the lenses that we put on, again, that'll shape the type of things we see and notice in the of world and the types of things that we might take into consideration about the world behind. So these three worlds, uh, you know, kind of help us make sense of that sentence. Jesus was, but, uh, which is in the world in front of the text, uh, the New Testament 
stories are Christian stories. Uh, interpreters throughout centuries have um, taken these stories and made sense of them in what we now call a Christian context. And of course, Christian context differs from congregation to congregation and person to person. But generally speaking, in our world in front of the New Testament, to be Christian is to not be Jewish. And I know that some people do identify as Jewish Christ followers, but generally speaking, um, Christianity is not a Jewish movement. Um, and and so, you know, as a scholar, I, I the, the question that I end up asking is, okay, so what about the world of and what about the world behind? Is there is there a different story? Is there something different historically? And if we go to the world behind, might we eventually catch up to the world in front and see what happened, see it, you know, what was and then how it came to be? And the answer is yes, we can do that. So um, looking to the world behind the New Testament actually um, calls for us to look even a little bit earlier than the early 50s. So um, for example, I'm teaching an introduction to New Testament now. We don't open our New Testament canon until about the third week um, or sometimes even the, the fourth week of the semester because jumping into the early 50s of the common era and what the world was like for someone like Paul, um, you know, is it that's too rushed. We we need to sort of figure out, okay, what was life like for early Jesus followers? What was um uh, what was the theology, you know, what were the theologies cir circulating around them? Um, and so a place that's that's helpful to start when trying to unpack the historical context of Jesus and his earliest followers uh, actually goes back to what we now consider to be the Hanukkah story. So in the world in front of the of this Hanukkah story, in both Jewish and Christian circles, the historical aspects of what actually was happening are often forgotten. So Jews in December, um, you know, take out the menorahs, light the candles, celebrate this story of um, a group called the Maccabees overthrowing a Greek king um, in about 165 BCE or before the Common Era. Um, and, and celebrate it as if, you know, this is just a, a totally heroic thing. So amazing that this Jewish family got to, you know, overthrow this um, Greek imperial system, this, this imperial system that forced Jews to renounce their Jewishness. And in overcoming this system, Jews got to reclaim their temple and sort of have ownership over themselves, um, you know, in the, in, you know, uh, the 100, 150 years uh, prior to, to Jesus's birth uh, in Judea. And when we look to the world behind of this, this story, that's not how it was at all. Um, so second century BCE, there's this Greek king named Antiochus IV, and he is forcing Jews to renounce their Jewishness. He is um, telling Jews that they need to eat unkosher foods sacrificed to the Greek gods. Uh, and if they don't, he will kill them. Uh, and then he goes to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and, um, you know, puts up a statue of Zeus and um, basically makes the Jewish temple a Greek one. And it is true that a small family, their family name was Hasmonean, um, collected together and got others involved, um, nicknamed themselves the Maccabees, and did fight to overthrow Antiochus IV and did reclaim the temple. 
The oft overlooked part of the story in modernity, however, is that many Jews of the time period did not support the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were, um, you know, had policies that many Jews did not agree with. The Hasmoneans were taking up arms in a way that many Jews did not agree with. And there was so much strife about how the Hasmoneans conducted themselves that we start to see the kernels of what scholars call ancient Jewish sectarianism, which is basically fancy terminology for Jews um, diversifying into different sects, into different schools of thought. So Jews, early centuries BCE, cared about their Jewishness, cared about their God, the God of Israel, cared about the temple in Jerusalem where they thought their God dwelled, cared about Torah, their texts and their ethnic codes, um, such as, you know, keeping the Sabbath, keeping kosher and practicing circumcision. But they started to argue with each other about how best to be in relationship with God, temple, and Torah. Jews started to argue vehemently about how best to be in relationship with God, temple, and Torah. And some Jews were so fed up with how the Hasmoneans started to run the temple that they decided to leave the center of um, Jewish life and go and live in private monastic-like communities outside of the city centers. So... Jesus was born into this world of um, massive Jewish difference and debate, Jews arguing with each other in harsh language um, about how best to be Jewish. Again, all caring about their Jewishness, but coming to different conclusions about how best to be in relation to their God, their temple, and their Torah. By the time Jesus was born, the Hasmoneans weren't in full power anymore. They still had um, some sense of political authority, but the Roman Empire had come in. And so Jesus was born into this overarching Roman imperial space that was um, deeply impacted by the Greek world. But then also at the same time, these um, these major effects of the Hasmonean dynasty, um, effects that are still lingering. And again, Hasmoneans do still have some sort of political authority. Rome didn't come in and wipe everything away. Rome just said, we're going to overlook everything. And you can kind of run in a similar way, but with us at the center of, of um, you know, broader government. So again, going back to this this idea of Jesus is born into a world of Jewish difference and debate. And Jesus as a historical figure is, um, you know, entering these conversations for himself, is um, arguing with other Jews about how best to be Jewish, how best to be in relation to God and to temple and to Torah. Um, and a major theological point that's circulating around these debates um, is that of a Messiah. So by the time Jesus is born, he's born in 4 BCE, our Gregorian calendar has it just a few years off. He's not born in what we would consider to be zero or one. It uh, matches up more like to 4 BCE. Um, and, and he's born into this, this world where Jews are, are hoping for a Messiah. Messiah is the same word as Christ. So Jesus Christ, that's not Jesus's full name. To call Jesus Christ is to call him the Messiah. It's a title. Messiah also means king. So Messiah equals Christ equals king. And what's wrapped around this is a broader theological hope that one day a king often thought to be imagined in the line of David will come and overthrow the powers that be to establish a new world order in which the God of Israel is seen as the God of all people. This is a remarkably Jewish and um, ethnically particular hope. 
So again, the messianic expectation was this hope that a king in the line of ancient Israelite David would come overthrow the powers that be for someone in Jesus's world. It would be Rome. It might be the Hasmonean elite alongside Rome would overthrow those people and create a new world order in which everyone would see that the God of Israel is God. So Jews who thought that Jesus was the Messiah thought that the best way to be Jewish was to follow Jesus and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jews and were just part of this mix and mingling of Jewish philosophy, Jewish discourse, Jewish debate. And, you know, this, a new sectarian group out of lots of different sectarian groups developed focusing on Jesus as the one to overthrow the powers that be and create a new world order in which the God of Israel is the God of all people. So Jesus, born in 4 BCE, dies in 30, towards the end of his life, gathers disciples, gathers students, disciples means students, and these people are believing that Jesus is the one who is going to set up this new world order to usher in this new world order, and they just become another sectarian group called the Jesus followers, alongside lots of other Jewish sectarian groups. So fully, fundamentally, a Jewish movement, not anything else. Um, and so, so far in this, you know, this historical space, it's all Jewish. It's nothing else. So we're still needing to ask the question, okay, what happened? How did it go from Jesus is a Jew, the entire movement is Jewish, the entire concept of the Messiah is a fundamentally Jewish concept. How did we get from there to Christianity being a not Jewish movement? Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of a hint now, uh, but this is a two-part uh, lesson. And so I'll go more into that part um, uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, but um, it goes back to, you know, the first text to have been written in the New Testament. Um, notice when I called upon those 27 texts, I never said anything about Jesus writing his own stories. We don't have anything um, that Jesus wrote himself. In all likelihood, he he couldn't. Most people couldn't read or write in antiquity. 90% of the population was illiterate. Is it possible he could read and write Sure, maybe. Um, you know, I know um, there's a passage that's talking about Jesus, you know, reciting from the Torah, um, but Jesus didn't write that himself. And in fact, all of the gospel stories are written anonymously decades after Jesus died. Um, we don't have any firsthand accounts of Jesus's life. So nothing written by him and nothing written by his actual followers, as far as we know. So the stories about Jesus's life they start to enter the scene around 70 of the common era. That's 40 years after Jesus died. And the first texts to have been written aren't even those gospels. They are letters, letters written by someone named Paul. Paul was a Jew who at first did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And I'll talk more about that um, in a couple of weeks as to why it didn't make sense for, um, in his mind, to believe that Jesus would fulfill the messianic expectation but eventually he has a change of heart and he does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So he goes from being a Jew who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah to being a Jew who does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that belief, he um, carries this full fundamental conviction that his role in being a Jesus follower is to usher in non-Jews into the community. He says there's already Jews a part of this. This entire thing is Jewish, 
Um, there are people spreading the word of Jesus as the Messiah to other Jews. And what's needed is um, a message to Gentiles, a message to non-Jews. And he makes it his life mission to travel across the Mediterranean and bring non-Jews into the movement. So by the early 50s of the Common Era, we have evidence that the Jesus movement is filled with Jews believing that Jesus is the Messiah and non-Jews believing that Jesus is the Messiah. We have difference and debate about how best to be Jewish, and we also have difference and debate about how best to be a follower of Jesus as the Christ, of Jesus as the Messiah. This messiness is going to get messier and messier and messier until around the year 400 of the Common Era, we start to see a couple winning movements. Um, so I'm going to leave it at a massive cliffhanger um, and looking at the historical world um, so far. This is a fundamentally Jewish uh experienced Jewish group until we have someone like Paul bringing in non-Jews. It's going to get really messy. And then we're going to see in a couple of weeks what comes out of that mess and how we got from this is a fully fundamentally Jewish movement to a winning movement that is not a Jewish one. And that is it for today. Sarah, this is so great and so helpful. And I hope you know you're you're like speaking right into, I think, what our congregation kind of loves, which is looking at the history and the context. And I feel like this was a really helpful, um, good like foundation for that. I wondered if if I could ask a question, um, this is just more like my my undergrad was history and I, I kind of just love this. I had read in some places that there may have even been hopes for like multiple messiahs. Have, mm -hmm. you, have you read that or is that misplaced mm -hmm. that, no. okay, that no, maybe there would be one, okay. Yeah, yeah, that there there might be one in the line of David and there might be one in the line of Aaron, um, a priestly right. uh, messiah. So yeah, um Dead Sea Scrolls. I noticed you you wrote um Essenes in the in the chat uh -huh. at one point. So yeah, um Essenes were were one of the sectarian groups that yeah um left the city center and some people wonder if maybe the writers of the texts found at the Dead Sea, um, otherwise known as Qumran, um, uh, may, may have been a scene like. And certainly those texts indicate that some Jews were thinking that, yeah, the, the messianic expectation called for two leaders, um, which just adds to the difference in debate. I mean, there's not one linear way to be Jewish whatsoever, nor is there one messianic hope. Right. Yeah, that there would be potentially one to come and oversee the temple and overthrow, and then another like warrior messiah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does just get so messy because it's um, it's trying to understand all of these different streams, and that hasn't been a traditional part of a lot of Christian teaching as we've gone through, you know, many of us Sunday school or whatever growing up. Same in Judaism. Really? It's really yes. Um, you know, I remember I, I worked at a reconstructionist synagogue while finishing up my PhD. And um, yeah, when when people would find out that I was studying the New Testament, it would it would almost like, you know, speaking of trauma, like trigger them, you know, be uh -huh. really like, how could you how could you be in relation to those texts? And I'm like, they're so Jewish. These are yeah. such you know, this is such a huge part of Jewish history that is just, you know, forgotten about because of the world in front that, you know, comes centuries later. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's missing in the Jewish, um, the Jewish, teaching. The Jewish mindset as well. Yeah. Remember, I read a book just, I mean, this was probably 15, 20 years ago that kind of shocked my little Christian self 
where it was showing some of the quotes of various rabbis and different streams around Jesus's time. And then Jesus's quotes next to them. I was like, oh, these are not like Jesus, you know, like trademarked yeah. kinds of, I was like, oh, he's very much in these other streams and interacting. And that was sort of the beginning of my own, like, oh, what's actually happening? Yeah. Yeah. Space. But it's hard. Yeah, he's molded by Jewishness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if you mind taking a question. I do see Steve mm -hmm. had asked, um, I'm assuming that was Steve of Steve and Joy here. Uh, mm. Or he said, or maybe Actually, said, just like, yeah, just like, how does, was there an expectation of divinity within? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> there's one, um, usually I tell students, you know, let's not be anachronistic. Let's not put our, you know, um, uh, norms of modernity out yeah. of time onto antiquity, except for one thing we can be anachronistic about, which is, um, uh, you know, Jews today laugh at just how, you know, you go to Torah study and just like, no one's going to agree with each other. Is <laughs> everyone like right. two Jews, three opinions, you know, that's like the classic Jewish joke. Yeah. And that is something you can bring to antiquity, two Jews, three opinions, like there's no <laughs> one way about it. And yeah. so it, de it depended on the Jew you asked. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Okay. So it, it goes back to um, the multiplicity of being, a, a, or the difference in debate within the Christ following movement. Some people okay. believed um, and, and even the, the multiplicity within early Judaism, some people believed that the, the, the Christ or the Messiah would be fully human, right. um, and then therefore wanted to make sense of Jesus as fully human. And some people believed that that Messiah would have some sort of a connection with the divine realm. The book of Daniel is a great example of how one can imagine a messianic figure having a relationship with the divine realm. The word monotheism does not make sense. I don't think it makes sense mm -hmm. for modernity or antiquity. Um, mm -hmm. The divine realm, as we see in texts like Daniel, you have the Godhead and the Godhead is just like hanging out with thousands and thousands of divine beings. Yep. And one of those divine beings is given dominion of a new world order. It's a, it's a messianic story in the book of Daniel. And again, that, that Messiah is lingering in the divine space. So that's is that just the son of example. man. Son of man. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that's a confusing title the son of man. Yeah makes it seem like it's human, but the son of man, generally speaking, is a divine character. Yeah. So, um, and son of God is usually a human character. It's confusing. Yeah. Um, but like David, for example, is called like a son of God, you know, kind of thing. Or the Israelites are children of God um, and they're human. But yeah. um, people would connect their idea of a very human king with conceptions of, you know, or with, with memories of these stories of uh, an otherworldly being being granted dominion. And so then people would interpret those messages in all sorts of different ways. Some people would say it has to be fully human. Some people say maybe it's fully divine. And maybe people, you know, some people would say maybe it's a mix of both. Yeah. Um, and we'll see that, you know, the, the version of being a Jesus father, that one is a mix of both. Yeah. Okay. That was really, thank you very much for answering that. Mm -hmm. um, that's really helpful. And I love how you say, you know, like what, like three Jews, two opinions or four Jews, three opinions. Like we've, we've kind of tried to learn a little of that from that too, because there's so much in our faith tradition where things are just kind of black and white. Like you have to believe X, Y, and Z. And we try and yeah. just put things very loosely of like, there's a great diversity of opinion and yeah, you know, we might be wrong. And yeah. It's, it's a fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity, and even um, a difference between Judaism and then Christianity and Islam, which is yeah. both Christianity and Islam have creeds. Yeah. You have a profession of faith. 
Yeah. Whereas in Judaism, that just isn't something that came to, you know, come into existence. So if you convert to Judaism or something, it's, it's not about, you don't make a faith-based statement. Yeah. Um, it's not part of it. So it lends itself automatically, I think, to, um, you know, a little more looseness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we don't ask people to sign a statement of faith. And I would say even in the modern day, there's a lot of the creeds that are in this sort of new reformation that's happening mm-hmm. in the Christian faith that are very much up for debate again, or hmm. people are holding them far more loosely. And so I, I think that's probably a healthy thing. Um, yeah. For, yeah. For the yeah. As we're untangling our mess and our messes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I don't want to like uh, keep you too long on here. So I think we'll go ahead and move on. But I want to say a big thank you. I'm very much looking forward to hearing you in a couple of weeks. I mean, thinking, oh, gosh, we should like read Revel- the Revelation book like as a congregation and have you come interact if that I is a possibility. I would love to do that. So, yeah, I'm teaching um, Revelation on um, in, in a different congregation. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in churches all the time from oh. being a kid till now, just always, always in the church community. Uh, yeah, the title of the, um, the Revelation book, it's um, published with Cambridge University Press. Um, it's called Humor, Resistance, and oh. Jewish Cultural Persistence in the Book of Revelation, Roasting Rome. I own it already. What? I actually have that in my, I haven't read it yet, but it's been on my, crazy. I didn't connect that that was you. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. Wow. Amazing. Well, it found its way into my, into my hand. Somebody was like, oh, you would like this. So wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, cool. That's Very cool. Thank you, Sarah.